Hello, everyone, and welcome to the What About the Canadians, a podcast about Canadian history. My name is Ashley. And my name is Shauna, and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we will be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. And more specifically, we'll examine the battles the Canadians served in. Contempt for one's enemy can start as a simple thought. A thought that grows into an ideology that passes down through the generations to the point where that disdain courses through your veins from the moment of your birth. For a thousand years, two foes, the mighty lion and the wise Marianne, fought for dominance, leaving traces of their wrath that would scar the landscape of our world. In time, these two powers would put down their swords against each other and in a new era, raise their guns towards a common enemy. But these two cultures coexisting on a taken land across the Atlantic were still feeling the effect of this wrath. Now, of course, we are talking about the ever-present tension between the English and the French in Canada. So Whoa. that was intense. <laughs> We're going deep today. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> battle on the home front. Yes. Yes, we're going back home, and I'm not trying to stir the pot, but we are going to talk about the conscription crisis of 1917. Oh, it's still boiling under the surface. I can feel it now. I know. Hold on to your hats. Let's go. (laughs) All right. On October 23rd of 1916, Prime Minister Borden issued a two-page appeal to the people of Canada calling for volunteer enlistees. Now, I'm not going to read the whole appeal to you, obviously, but I think the following like snippet sort of captures his sentiments of where we're at at this point in time in the war. So here we go. So notwithstanding the success of the Allied forces in various theaters during the past summer, there is reason to know that the enemy is still strong and determined. A mightier effort than may be imagined is necessary to secure conclusive victory. The war must have so decisive a result that lasting peace can be secured. To men of military age, I make appeal that they place themselves at the service of the state for military duty, and to the women of Canada, whose spirit has been so splendid and so inspiring in this hour of devotion and sacrifice, I bid God speed in the manifold works of beneficence in which they are now engaged, and I pray them to aid more still in every field of national service for which they themselves are fitted. So by the beginning of 1917, the number of men dying at the front were outnumbering enlistees. Now, for example, in April of 1917, which we know is the famous Battle of Vimy Ridge, there were over 26,000 casualties, but only 4,700 men in Canada volunteered to enlist. Now, I this is obviously a, a skewed number because we're not having huge losses like this every month. So 
To give you a better idea, um, it was estimated that to keep up the strength of the CEF, about 6,200 men would have to volunteer per month. But enlistment rate at this time was roughly about 76% of what was needed. So come the spring of 1917, Prime Minister Borden traveled to London to meet with the British War Cabinet. Now, this would be the first time the leaders of Dominion countries were invited to discuss strategy. So obviously, this is pretty big deal for Borden, um, although probably not a smart one for England. I mean, you're kind of just slowly like planting the seed for sovereignty. <laughs> like, Yeah, but I think they probably knew like how much they relied, especially like on the Australian, the Anzacs and Canada. And if they didn't bring them into the conversation, into that fold, it was going to maybe push them farther away. That's true, too. That is a different perspective of looking at it, for sure. Very good observation, Shauna. <laughs> um, so while he was in um, Europe, he also toured the battlefields of France. And here is where his mind became impregnated with the image of our weary young men courageously putting their lives on the line every day to protect the liberties of our great country. Now, upon his return home, he gave a passionate speech to the House of Representatives. Now, I've condensed this passionate speech, but I want to give you a snippet of what he was saying. So he says, I've returned to Canada impressed at once with the extreme gravity of the situation and with a sense of responsibility for our further effort at the most critical period of the war. All citizens are liable to military service for the defense of their country, and I conceive that the battle for Canadian liberty and autonomy is being fought today on the plains of France and Belgium. Now the question arises as to what our duty is. A great responsibility rests upon those who are entrusted with the administration of public affairs. The time has come when the authority of the state should be invoked to provide reinforcements necessary to maintain the gallant men at the front. I bring back to the people of Canada from these men a message that they need our help. I have promised that this help shall be given. The responsibility is a serious one, but I do not shrink from it. Therefore, it is my duty to announce to the House that early proposals will be made to provide for compulsory military enlistment. Now, needless to say, the shit hit the fan. <laughs> Which, by the way, I found out that this idiom may have actually originated in the Canadian military in the 20th century. So like right around the time that we're talking about. So that's really a fun little, fun little tidbit I found out. <laughs> I use that phrase often. <laughs> in your personal life, in your work life, yeah, here, totally. everywhere. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now his most vocal opponent, of course, was the leader of the opposition, which was Sir Wilfred Laurier, which was one of the fathers of Confederation, who, by the way, at this point in time is now 76 years old and serving his 46 year 
of government. Wow. He was in for the law. Yeah. Was I was very- kind of disappointed there, though. I thought you were going to pop up with Sam Hughes. <laughs> you know what? He doesn't disappear from this discussion, but I don't remember <laughs> if I talk about him or not. If I remember, I'll try to include him. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, he was immediate to denounce the bill and this was his thought on the proposition. He said, all my life, I have fought coercion. All my life, I have promoted union and the inspiration that led me to that course shall be my guide at all times. So long there is breath in my body. I oppose the bill because it has in it seeds of discord and disunion because it is an obstacle and a bard to the union of heart, and should without which it impossible to hope that this confederation will attain the aims and ends that were had in view when confederation was effected. That could have been written much differently. I don't know if you can argue with him. I mean, he was around there for, what, 46 years at this point, right? I think he knows. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) You do, you, Laurier. (laughs) All right. Um, So somewhat in response, it wasn't a direct response, but in Borden's memoirs, uh, he wrote, um, it has been said of this bill that it will induce disunion discord and strife, and that it will paralyze the national effort. I trust that this prophecy may prove unfounded. Why should strife be induced by the application of a principle that was adopted at the very inception of confederation? Now, the principle that Borden is referring to um, is conscription in itself. Now, the idea was introduced in the Militia Act and gradually involved, or pardon me, evolved to include more detailed parameters of balloting men into the militia, a.k.a. conscription. So what basically Borden is arguing is that he's not really asking for anything beyond what has already been contemplated and deemed a fundamental principle to Canada. And (laughs) I just hear Shana yawning. (laughs) Sorry, I should have muted. Oh, God, my co-host is bored already. Uh, no, it's no, just late. she's been up late. It's just late. Yeah, we are recording at 9.30 on a Sunday. <laughs> uh, well, Shauna might not be committed, but Borden is committed. <laughs> and he is so committed that uh, he found it just completely unfathomable that there were men on the home front that were resisting involvement in the war. He wrote, if we do not keep our plighted faith, with what countenance shall we meet with them on their return? I am not so much concerned for the day when this bill becomes law as the day when these men return if it is rejected. So I don't know about you, but I kind of think Borden's appeal to men's conscience was a little short-sighted at this point. Um, I think by the third year of the war, if someone had wanted to volunteer, perhaps they might have done so by now. I mean, unless they were really needed on the home front. But I kind of do think that conscription was the answer at this point in time. 
Yeah, I mean, unless they were, like, really raring to go at the beginning of the war, but they were only, like, 15. And then they True. had to wait a couple of years or something, but... True. Yeah. In Canada, there were 1.5 million males eligible to enlist in service. But at this point in the war, less than a third had joined the effort. Now, by this time, we already know there is a clear discrepancy between the number of enlistees between French and English-speaking Canadians. Now, in Quebec, 58,000 out of the 376,000 eligible um, men had actually enlisted in the CEF, which is a rate of about 15.5%. And this is the lowest volunteer rate out of any other province. Now, before we go any further, I just want to say, like, it's very easy for someone to hear a statistic and weaponize it to create, like, a further divide between themselves, um, I guess, and the French people at this time. I mean, people pick and choose information to support their opinions, like, all the time. Um, so before we get really into the topic, I just want to point out some other surprising statistics and factors that influence enlistment rates. Now, this isn't comprehensive um, by any means, but it gives insight into factors at play. So that way, when we are discussing sort of the crux of the conscription crisis, we know this issue is not black and white. So we're going to look at stats through a quiz. So this means you, you got to answer some questions, Shauna. I'm on it. Okay. Bring it. Who had the higher enlistment rates, East or West? Like East or West Coast? Like Canada. Or like East, East or Western Canada. Where's the division? Probably Manitoba, um, Ontario, I would say. Okay. Um, I think Western Canada had the higher enlistment rates. Correct. Were enlistment rates higher in urban areas or rural areas? That one's tough because obviously the population density in urban areas is greater. I want to say urban. Correct. It was urban. Oh, I was overthinking that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The enlistment rate of Ontario, was it 26.3%, 37.8%, or 44.5%? The uh, the middle one, was it 37. Something. Yes, that's right. You're yes. doing very well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which province had the highest enlistment rate? Oh, I know this one. I read it. What was it? It was in my research too. Was it Alberta? No. Oh, darn. Do I, should I guess do you want again? More, do you yeah. want more, one more guess? Yeah. Um, dead airspace here. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. Uh, BC. It was Manitoba. Hmm. That one I didn't know. At fifty and a half percent. Wow! Everybody wanted to get the hell out of Manitoba, <laughs> huh? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question: Which province had the second lowest volunteer enlistment rate? The second lowest. So not Quebec. Uh, Saskatchewan. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Good job. How did you know that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I was surprised by that. 
their enlistment rate was 23.9%. So let's go through some of the reasons as to why this was the case. So of course, the economy played a part. In provinces that benefited economically from the war, there was a demand for workers. So in terms of military contracts, 46% of work went to Ontario, 29% went to Quebec, whereas the Prairie provinces only received 1%. So going way back to the first episode, like we know that the economy was not doing so hot at the beginning of the war and men wanted to go overseas to make some money. So this might be one reason why enlistment in the West was higher. Now, um, second, recruitment was lower in provinces that were primarily rural than urban. At the time, we needed farmers and many felt food production was critical to the war effort. But we also have to remember, oh, I just repeating myself that the economy was tanking (laughs) and unemployment was high. I got myself. (laughs) Uh, Third reason. Um, aliens of enemy nationalities were not permitted to fight. So if you were German or Austro-Hungarian, the government was not going to allow you to go to the front to fight. So if we look at Saskatchewan, 22% of their population had German or Austro-Hungarian ancestry. So this might have had some impact on recruitment numbers. What's another good reason? Ah, we are going to talk about Sam Hughes. If you remember, Sam Hughes did not want the French and his army. (laughs) (laughs) But he did want shovel shields and cardboard boots. That's right. But not the French. (laughs) So let's put ourselves in the shoes of a young French Canadian man. Preferably leather shoes instead of cardboard. That's right. Yeah. So picture a man. I like to picture him with a proper moustache (laughs) in a British style uniform. And he walks up to you. He talks to you in English. Maybe he has a translator. But he is asking you to join a war that your country was forced into on a continent that you have never been to and probably don't know a whole lot about. To top it off, the soldier is probably Protestant, and you may be asking, is this important? And yes, it is. (laughs) It is very important at this time. Religion was much more influential on our custom practices at this time. Now, he wants you to join this war. So you're standing in front of the man with the proper moustache and you're thinking to yourself, like, why on earth would I want to join this war? <laughs> like, I can, I have some empathy here. Not a whole lot of interest. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound very appealing. No, of course, it, of course not. <laughs> All right. So that's a little bit of background into like some regional variances um, in enlistments in the country. So it's not just like Quebecers were like, nah. I mean, obviously some Quebecers went, but I mean, there's other provinces too that didn't have the same like high enlistment rates like the go-getters of Manitoba. So <laughs> so I don't want to just pick on the Quebecers, but that's what was happening at the time, unfortunately. 
So we're going to jump back. So if you remember, the government unanimously voted to delay the 1916 election um, to the fall of 1917 so as not to disrupt the war effort. Now, with the expectation that war could come to an end in 1919, Borden knew that another extension of his term would never be granted. So he began politicking Laurier to create a coalition government. Now, with the announcement of compulsory military service, Laurier could not in good conscience agree to Borden's proposition of a coalition government. For Laurier, he did not want to lose his foothold in Quebec. Laurier had a long and complicated relationship with prominent French-Canadian politician and nationalist Henry Bourassa, and he knew full well that Bourassa would jump at the opportunity to create discord and further propagate his agenda of, and I quote, undiluted nationalism. And as I said, Laurier was a founding father of Confederation, so he was a very strong proponent of preserving Canadian unity. So <clears throat> nothing that Borden was presenting was going to fly with Laurier at this point in time. Borden, however, was not deterred. On the one hand, he thought it almost inconceivable that members of the Liberal Party would break with Laurier's leadership, because in his words, his prestige was unsurpassed. But on the other hand, Liberal MPs from the West, who held greater loyalty to their British ties, might actually be in favor of a coalition government. Now, there was also the issue of convincing MPs within his own party. Um, as he predicted, many would look at this move as an impediment to their advancement, thus leaving him to fear that his own party could implode. However, Borden was dissuaded from this potential consequence. In his words, my own political future seemed of insignificant consequence compared with the possibility that some unforeseen turn of political events might dishonor my pledge to the men overseas. So Borden pursued the idea. Now, it's a long story, so I'm going to give you the shorthand version. Borden did not succeed in influencing the liberals to create a coalition government. So he went to his next best option, and this was to create a new political party whereby the conservatives and liberals that agreed conscription was necessary could join together. And this new party was called the Unionist Party. Now, the question I kind of had is like, well, why bother? Like as a liberal or conservative, you could still vote in favor of a bill. Like, why not just push it through? Well, the thing is, Borden feared that if he lost the election, Laurier would not push for conscription. So by winning the election, he would have a clear path to enforcing conscription. Plus, it kind of gives him like a sense of legitimacy because it's like, quote, like what the people of Canada want. And, you know, this idea worked and some of the liberal members from the West crossed the floor and they created this new unionist party. So before we get into the election, let's talk about the conscription bills. Now, there were actually two bills that were introduced. The first was the Military Service Act and the second was the Wartime Elections Act. Now, the Military Service Act could enforce any male British subject 
And when I say that, that means like the people of Can- the men of Canada. That includes French Canadians, but it includes white male Canadians, right? That's that's right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. You are a resident of Canada of Canada unless that said individual has an exception and is over the age of forty five. Um. So there were. Um, like six different classes that you could be grouped into. So I'll, I'll go through it quickly. So men between the age of 23 and 34 that are unmarried or widowers with no children is class one. Class two is 23 to 34 year old men that are married or widowers with children. Then you kind of just go up the age group. So then the next age group is 35 to 41 year old men And then the next age group after that is the 42 to 45-year-old men. So anyone over 45, you were not going to be conscripted into war. I'm kind of surprised that they wanted 41 to 45-year-olds. That seems kind of past their prime. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I'm thinking by the (laughs) time... This will sound bad. But I'm thinking things must be pretty desperate at that point. If you're going to go bump up the, to those. those yeah, if you classes. go to the old men, you are super desperate. <laughs> I like how 45 is like, <laughs> I, know, I know it is like, I know it's older, like physically a 23 year old probably going to beat out a 45 year old most times, but <laughs> I don't appreciate the sentiment because that <laughs> age is on the horizon for uh, me. I am older than you. My husband <laughs> is in his 40s. So <laughs> he would have been in the last age group conscripted. Oh, really? Is he 42 now? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. I think he's turning 42 this year. Yeah, he is. Okay. I have to do the math. <laughs> I'm still in the second tier of men. Well, you're not a man. I'm a so woman. you didn't have to worry about it anyway. I know. I didn't have to go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, um, this is just me being a nerdy. I found it interesting that child was not defined under the act, but I'm assuming it meant children under the age of 18. But it was also noted that if you got married after July 6, 1917, you were still considered unmarried. So you couldn't get married for the sake of trying to avoid conscription to get you into that second I was just going to say, like, how many (laughs) weddings were there on July 5th? (laughs) It didn't matter. (laughs) Suck ass. Um, So who could be exempt from service? Um, One, if you are a man where it is in the nation's interest that you should continue to work or you have to be engaged in work because you have some sort of special qualification. Um, So, for example, I think this would include like farmers. You know, for example, maybe doctors, something of that nature. Number two, um, if you were continuing your education or training. Uh, Three, uh, a hardship would endure if um, like if there was an exceptional financial or business obligation or domestic position that you had to fulfill, like it would create some side of hardship. But I kind of took this as like, uh, if you're like wealthy enough, (laughs) Yeah, maybe you don't have to go because you're like, quote unquote, important, mm. debatable. Uh, for there's some type of health reason 
or five, you were a conscientious, a conscientious objector. And what that means is you were prohibited from service due to faith. And that religion had to be uh, a denomination recognized in Canada. So that, there's a bit of an exception, like a caveat to that. Like you could still be forced into service, but you just couldn't be forced into combat. Mm, so you could play a support role or something on the home front with like recruiting or, you know, something like that, probably. Yeah, something of that nature. Yeah. So when the bill was first introduced, um, there, of course, were exclusions, which you had brought up, Shauna. So men of enemy nations, whether by extraction or by birth, were prohibited from serving. Um, Indigenous men were also not included. It's interesting, though, because they were originally included to be conscripted, but critics of the bill insisted that Indigenous men um, should be excluded because they did not have the right to vote at that time. That's kind of fair. Maybe give them the right to vote. 100% agree. Did you know that Indigenous... I, oh, I can't say that word today. Indigenous <laughs> people in Canada um, were not allowed to vote until 1960. I did know that. And I think there was something that... I, I might be wrong on this now that I'm saying this out loud. But there was something that... And was it Indigenous women didn't have the vote or some group of Indigenous people, I think, didn't have the entire vote until 1987? Oh, really? I I think. Now I'm really doubting myself on that and I will have to put up notes or cut this out. But I I think there's something Could about be. that. Could be. In general, um, the information I have is they had the right to a vote um, without condition, I should say. Like, there were circumstances before 1960 where they could vote, but maybe there were conditions attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, but 1960, which is crazy to that me. That is bonkers. Bonkers, but also not surprising. Yeah. Now, the Wartime Elections Act, um, which is the second act that was introduced, um, helped ensure that during the present war until demobilization, that all military personnel could vote. So basically, they were trying to resolve a logistics issue because there are certain rules around where you can vote. Now, this sounds like the right thing to do, of course, but Borden's intentions weren't exactly altruistic. He knew full well that he could garner support from servicemen and women, and he needed those votes. But this bill was unique in that a woman could vote on behalf of her male or female relative, living or dead, who has or is serving in the CEF. So if you had a sister that was a nurse and she died overseas, you could vote in her stead. That is right. Okay. You can vote on behalf of the dead. Okay. But you didn't get your own vote. Let's get into that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> this, this fact is wild. Uh, however, <laughs> yes, okay. So there's a list of people that could not vote. One, Shana, being women could not vote on behalf of themselves. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, any person in Canada by either birth or extraction from an alien nation cannot vote. 
people of indigenous and Asian descent that were not serving in the CEF could not vote. Mennonites and Dukabors um, also cannot vote. They would be conscientious obje objectors. Now, these bills came under heavy criticism from Laurier. Laurier felt that every Canadian should have the right to vote in the election. To him, repealing the vote of aliens violated their pledge to immigrants and in itself was a retrograde and German measure. And B, it unjustly took away women's right to vote that had been enfranchised in five provinces. Fair criticism, sir. Yes. Fair criticism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um... Borden, or I should say, he countered by stating that, and these are quotes, it was cruel to send aliens of enemy nationality under the Military Service Act to fight men of their own kin, men of their own blood. I have not one word to say against their loyalty to Canada, but no one can doubt that the ties of blood mean something to them as they do to us. On the whole, there might not be the danger but who would undertake to say that in some individual instance, a man's intense sympathy for his own flesh and blood might not overcome his loyalty to his adopted country? If that occurred in one, two, or three instances, what would the result be? Do you think this is fair? I, I think it's too blanketed. Like, just because my grandpa was born in Germany doesn't mean I know anything about it or have any ties. Although, I have to say, I did study Western Canadian history recently, and the communities were tight. Yes. They kept their traditions. They kept to their own people for the most part, like in the rural, rural Alberta or, you know, any of the prairie provinces. There wasn't a whole lot of mixing around between like the German communities and like there weren't a whole lot of British farmers, I don't think. But, you know, whoever else there, they kept to their traditions and a lot of them didn't even speak English or very little English, even if they were second generation. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of have to say, I think Borden does have a valid point. Like he does recognize that. It's, pro might, it's probably unlikely that someone who goes to war for, like, the CEF is going to be a disturber of the peace, we shall say. Yeah, probably not. But, but, like you said, they do have those strong ties. Like, how would you feel fighting against your countrymen? I mean, nationalism was very different yes. 100 years ago than it was today. Yeah, it's very hard to put ourselves in that position because not all of us, but a lot of Canadians are pretty far removed from a different country and to feel that same pride and ties to wherever your family came from is it's yeah it's a different thing yeah i agree now do i think they should have the right to vote yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> absolutely i just wanted to clarify that <laughs> Now, as for granting all women the right to vote, Borden said, like, yeah, we plan to do that eventually. Let's just <laughs> we're sweep just, that one under the rug for now. We're not going to just do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, again, when I say all women, this excludes certain groups of women. So like non-white women. Yeah, you had to be white Protestant. There you go. <laughs> 
So after a period of debate, the bills were passed on August 28th. But as Borden promised, they would not be enforced until after the election. But if you were planning on applying for an exemption, you had to do so before the proclamation of service was made by the governor general, meaning you had to apply for exemption before the general election, to which then you would not be permitted to vote. Whoa. Let so that if, sink in. If you couldn't, if you didn't want to go to war, or sorry, if you, you had an exemption, a fair exemption, you couldn't vote in the federal election? Is that what Correct. you're saying? What? If you applied for an exemption, yeah. you cannot vote. Yeah. Uh, mm. Think about the, the <laughs> fairness of that. that that's, <laughs> that's something. That one blew my mind. Wow. <laughs> So even if you were, like, the exempt, like, you were disabled, you had some medical reason or or you're a conscientious objector or something, you still couldn't vote? Yeah, I mean, I didn't get into the details of everything, but like it's said before, like, yeah, I mean, people who had health issues, who were conscientious objectors... I'm assuming they fall into that category, but don't quote me on that. There are so many other issues that you're voting for rather than just conscription and just the war. Like, you're voting for your political leader, but just because you can't go to war? Well, at this time, this election was very much conscription. Yeah. It was conscription. But you're right. It's totally wrong. It's... (laughs) It just blew my mind when I read that. I had no idea. That's they didn't crazy. teach you that in school. No. Tell you that. They did not. <laughs> so I'm gaining a bit more empathy here for... <laughs> yeah, for the people that... Yeah, oh my gosh. Okay. All right. Yeah. So for two days, the people of Montreal rioted in the streets. Obviously. Yeah. I'm sure there were riots <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> Um, One was killed and four were injured, unfortunately. Now, this particular election was also known as the khaki election because it was the color of men's uniforms. And it is one of the ugliest in Canadian history for pretty obvious reasons at this point. Like I said, um, it is an election, but in essence, it was a referendum on conscription And a referendum on conscription really became about the beliefs of the English and the French Canadians. So as one would expect, smear campaigns were heavily used on both sides. I'm going to give a bit of an example here. (laughs) So the newspaper article from the Manitoba Free Press gives us an idea of what pro-conscriptionists were feeling. Quote, there is no longer any reason why the whole truth should not be spoken about Quebec. The people of that province have been raked quitters throughout the whole war. They have been prolific in excuses and evasions and in nothing else. The general election of December 17th is to decide whether or not they are to take charge of Canada for the remainder of the war. Whoa. Now for the... (laughs) Shots yeah. fired against Quebec. Oh, there's so many. The Oh, what was the one word that was often used? Is uh, it something you can say? Yeah, 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 I can. Okay. Uh, I can't think of it. 
And I refer to myself as this all the time. Anyway, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> like It's not like a skipper, but like a... Ah, forget it. Okay. Forget it. Okay. For French Canadians, going to war wasn't so simple. They lived within the confines of British imperialism, a system that actively discriminated against their rights, religion, and culture. Many believed that the war was an English endeavor and they didn't want to pay the blood tax. Now, if you are like most other Canadians at the time, you might wonder why the French would not want to help the nation of France. And I think it boils down to connection. Many French families had been established in Canada for a very long time, and they just didn't have those strong ties to like the old country, I guess I'll say anymore. There, there's a reason that there's, you know, people in France can choose to, well, not choose, that they can pick out Quebecois French rather than Parisian French or something. You know, there, there's a huge disconnect there between mm -hmm. France and Quebec with language, with culture, with everything. Because, I mean, the French have been in Quebec since... The 1500s, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It, and not a whole lot of new families came over there. Like, there wasn't the big waves, I don't think, of people from France coming and immigrating to Canada the way there was with British or German in more modern times. So, yeah, they, they weren't really from France in the same more idea. Yeah. I, I didn't include this quote, and I don't remember the exact wording, but basically I read that some of the sentiment was like, basically France deserved to be in war because of like how they were running the Catholic church over there at the time. Like Whoa. they thought it was like an abomination. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I should have included it. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so ties were strong, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> now, the most vocal opponent to the war and conscription was Henry Borassa. Now, it is important to recognize that Borassa was not a separatist in the sense that we know of today. To him, and this is a, a quote, the fatherland for us is Canada as a whole. That is to say, a federation of distinct races and autonomous provinces. The nation is the Canadian nation, composed of French Canadians and English Canadians. So what Barassa wanted was separation from Britain, because Canada would never be able to serve its own interests while still tied to the empire. Now, Barassa was distrusting of rising industry, trade, English-speaking Catholics and immigrants, which, in his opinion, threatened the French-Canadian existence. So I'm not going to delve into his entire ideology, but it would be um, like clear that Barassa falls into like the more extremist camp. Now, unfortunately, as is true in our world today, sometimes the voices of a few are louder than the voices of many. So I kind of do have to wonder like how representative Borassa was of the average French Canadian. Um, and I think this is actually echoed in a letter received by the Premier of Quebec. In this letter, it said, Borassa is the most debasing influence ever brought to bear in deceiving the French Canadian electorate. 
Now, this writer um, actually blamed Barassa for the low enlistment rate in Quebec as well. Plus, I have to wonder in reality, um, I think like Laurier was probably the more rational voice of the French majority. But I mean, unfortunately, emotions were running so high during this time that it was very much either you're with us in this war or you're not. And because most Canadians supported the war, Laurie lost popularity and he soon became tied to Barassa and Barassa was sort of like the black sheep of the family. So as you could probably predict, Borden's government won the election. Now on January 1st, 1918, the Military Service Act was enforced. Of the 400,000 class one men that became eligible for conscription, 93.7 applied for an exemption from military (laughs) service. (laughs) And I guarantee you that there were British men applying for the exemption. Absolutely. Like, you really do have to wonder, like, was conscription the true opinion of Canadians. Doesn't it's, sound like it. <laughs> I agree. It's very much put in doubt. It's <laughs> <laughs> just kind of like a, a side note. When At the time when this passed, um, the office in charge of overseas records in Britain actually suggested putting like an identifying number on like a draftee's paperwork. So it's like, just let's just put a target on their back. <laughs> And say, hey, here's the men that didn't want nothing to do with your war. Yeah. (laughs) What a terrible idea. But um, our good old friend, General Turner, if you remember him. I remember Turner. Yes. He quickly squashed that idea. Good. So, bravo. Good idea. Yeah. Uh, Turner made it clear that preferential treatment towards volunteers at the detriment of draftees would not be tolerated. It wouldn't turn out well. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. It would be distracting from the war effort from for one. At the very least, yeah. At the very least, you'd have all this like animosity and <laughs> yeah, chaos. Okay, so tensions over this whole issue came to a head on Easter weekend. Dominion police arrested a Frenchman that could not produce his exemption papers. Although the man was released, a riot of 200 that grew into 15,000 by Friday had descended upon the St. Roche District Police Station. They ransacked the register office and two um, pro-conscription newspaper offices. Now, unable to quell the mobs, Borden invoked the famous War Measures Act, which we have gone through recently with our own prime minister. Mm-hmm. Um, he sent in the military force of 780 soldiers with thousands more on their way to calm the situation, but this did not help. Instead, the mob began firing on the soldiers and inevitably the soldiers were commanded to fire into the crowd. Now five were killed and dozens more were injured, but it marked the end of the riot. And this moment only served to intensify the distrust between two cultures trying to exist within one nation. 
Now, overall, 124,588 men were conscripted, but only 24,132 were sent to the front. And that is our overview of conscription. Woo! Yeah. It's getting hot! <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I have to say, um, my perspective on conscription certainly changed. Yeah, yeah, it gives you a bit of perspective to actually know what happened. 100%. Because, like, I, I think when you look back on these events... And you kind of, the nationalistic pride kind of swells up in you. Like like when we went to Vimy Ridge, for example, and it's easy to say like, well, of course I would go to war like, yeah. and fight for, for my country, right? But then when you get into the details that your school system conveniently leaves out, a different story comes into play. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't know any of this. And I actually rem- I remember writing a paper in high school at some point about conscription during World War One, and I don't remember learning any of that part of it. No, me neither. I was totally dumbfounded. <laughs> Especially over the voting. That is huge. What a ridiculous caveat in that. I, I don't know how they got away with it. No. I, anyway. <laughs> what are you going to take us into, Shauna? Oh, so a few other things are going on in the home front, on the home front, not in the home front, on the home front. First, I think we're going to jump into just a little bit of Canadian economics at the time. I, I'm not super turned on by economics, <laughs> but uh, but it's it is an important piece of the puzzle here. <laughs> so we should. And I work in finance and I don't really like economics. Um, I, you know what? I do too. And I don't either. <laughs> so we're going to just go over this really quickly and just see where Canada is sitting at the time. And then after that, I'm going to talk a little bit about some women and then we will Ooh. call it a day. Yeah. Okay. So before the war, Canada had dipped into a bit of a recession. Ashley had mentioned that and it, that was in about 1912. Um, So this was really worrying for everybody because the real cost of the war, nobody really expected or could even predict how much it was going to cost because everybody was like, oh, we'll be home by Christmas. But it just continually inflated. In fact, the pre-war federal budget was $185 but that quadrupled to more than $740 uh, during the war years. Is that... Their money? That's the Our Canadian money. federal budget. No, I know, but oh. like in 19... 19- oh, no, no. That, that is their money. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was huge. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's huge. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and the net national debt also quadrupled, which was a really big shock because there wasn't a whole lot of national debt at the time since Canada was so new. So to have this huge debt, all of a sudden people were very worried about what was going to go on there. Um, Before the war, the government made their revenue mostly on customs duties, postal rates and tariffs. Um, There was no income tax at the time. And, but there was no way they were going to raise these rates high enough to make up for that kind of debt and that kind of budget increase. So the 
government decided to borrow from Canadians by introducing war bonds. This was their first introduction into that. I know in World War II, war bonds became like this huge propaganda, but really it did start in World War I. Uh, the government went full tilt with their propaganda. Um, they sold their victory bonds, as they called them. And the deal with the bonds was that if you bought bonds, you were essentially giving the government a loan that had up to a 5.5% interest rate. And there was a term of up to 20 years. So people did stand a chance at making some money off these bonds. Um, so it not only was enticing on a financial scale, but the propaganda, propaganda campaigns linked buying bonds to directly helping the soldiers in the field and even kind of using guilt and pride with the well, do your bit angle. Yeah. There was a lot of posters saying do your bit. That was their their little spiel. It's um, all based on your emotion and we're going to tax you on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Just pull on those heartstrings a little bit. People give up their cash. Um, so everyone was expected to help in one way or another. So if the only thing that you could do to help out was buy a war bond, at least you were doing something for your nation, your your boys overseas. Uh, there were posters, which was really one of the main forms of propaganda at the time because we didn't, you know, they didn't have TV or really big billboards or radio even wasn't really radio advertising wasn't so much of a thing then uh, so they had posters everywhere and they had pictures of brawny soldiers in kilts saying they were doing their bit so you should do yours by <laughs> buying war bonds and they also used it as a way of like saving money for your children because you were you know you were investing so you could get the money back and you were helping your country um all the, and all the propaganda worked the government raised $2 billion by selling the war bonds, but the selling of the war bonds actually meant that the government was essentially going further into debt yeah. to its own citizens, which made the chance of making the financial futures of its own citizens pretty dicey. So eventually they would have to pay back that money and then the economy wouldn't do so well at that point. So, as I said, there was a growing sentiment that everybody should be doing their bit, which also meant that corporations and the wealthy should be pitching in. So the government did bow to the pressure and they implemented business taxes on profits, which was a very new thing and people were not happy. Well, the wealthy and the business owners were not happy about that. Of course. The regular They're shows still unhappy like, yeah. when you do that. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. How dare you tax those rich people? <laughs> so in 1917, they created the first Canadian income tax, which seemed boo. Well, boo and yay. I mean, no, I know services, money, it all balances out. Well, no, I it doesn't know. balance out. But <laughs> so this was only supposed to be temporary, though. It was a war measure. But look who's still paying it today. That <laughs> uh, these taxes weren't actually affecting everyone and they didn't really do very much the war bonds were a, a way better money maker than than these income taxes were so when the war started the economy was already in that rough shape with the re recession i mentioned and things were not looking good economically speaking um manufacturing contracts were canceled 
buying slumped, construction projects were put on hold, and all of a sudden there were very few workers available. But then a kind of a surprising thing, at least to me, because I'm not an economist, a surprising thing happened. Um, but the war effort really needed supplies and Canada was really set up to provide those supplies. They had a ton of manufacturing in the East. The prairies were in an awesome position to provide wheat to the soldiers and to other allied countries that were, you know, on verge of starvation, some of them. And BC had a ton of raw materials to provide uh, with lumber and other natural resources to the manufacturing sector. So with all this, I mean, yes, they had less workers, but other countries started buying up and they started producing a whole lot more. So the Canadian economy actually ended up booming for a while. So mm-hmm. that was that was good that we ended mm-hmm. up pretty strong there, even with all that debt. Um, so there's my boring bit on the economy. Whoa. No, I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so now we can get a little bit more into something I like to talk about more, which is I've been waiting. I've been waiting because we have not touched on women at all. No, we haven't. And I I don't know if I did it service here because I was trying to be (laughs) rather brief. So I think that we could do a mini-sode or a whole nother episode just on the women. I feel like we should. I deliberately not talked about women in certain circumstances particularly about women in Europe no, I'm not talking so much about nurses if you can read between the lines <laughs> great if you can't then don't worry about it but I've kind of avoided that discussion for the purposes of our podcast but I definitely think we owe these ladies oh, some we attention do. yeah they <laughs> did so much and it's interesting to me when I was trying to look up even just a little bit of information. There was lots on the nurses and they did a whole lot, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're we're talking about the home front. So I didn't want to dive into the nurses. So there was less, a whole lot less information available about the women that stayed at home. So I want to take this one a little bit deeper and maybe do a full episode later on. But here's here's a little overview. So there is a bit of... uh, I don't want to call it a full-on myth, but a thought that women came in droves into the workforce when men left the war. And they filled the factories. And then when the men came home, they were sent home from the factories. And that wasn't exact. Well, some historians think, I shouldn't say that this is concrete fact, that it wasn't a ton of women coming into the workforce to take up these jobs. A lot of the women that came into these jobs were already in the workforce, but they came into different jobs. Okay. A lot of them were already caregivers, like paid caregivers, school teachers, um, laundresses, people in those kind of positions. And but the factories paid better. So they left their other jobs to come into the factories. 
Um, that's not to say that there weren't women coming into the workforce. There absolutely was. But the majority of them were already in certain positions. They just weren't in male-dominated positions. Okay, that yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Um, but there were a lot of women that did come into the workforce, and th- those were a lot of the times younger women that had finished school but didn't really have anything else to do. Um, and they took... They, a lot of them took the jobs that other women had left. They had, they took up the school teacher or the laundress or, you know, caregivers of some kind, nannies, things like that. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of a discrepancy there. After the war, the movement for gender equality and suffrage had the argument that women's domestic work had proven to be just as important as men's work outside the home. So a lot of the women's movements at the time weren't necessarily focusing on equality in the workforce. It was more saying, well, we do all this at home and that is really important. Look, your men wouldn't be able to go to war if we didn't take care of the house. So we are just as good as you. We work just as hard as you. We just don't get paid for this and we do it in your house. This is why I avoid this topic, because it just gets me fired up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. (laughs) It sure is. (laughs) Continue. Okay, so the first kind of exposition into the war for the women um, was the women's leagues across the country. So women were encouraged from the beginning to support the war effort. And one of the main propagandists, I guess, um, about for women's leagues was Queen Mary. And she started almost immediately the Queen Mary Needlework Guild, or the QMNG. Uh, she urged patriotic women of the empire to do their part. It would be a sisterhood of service uniting women of all ranks and ages in the mother country and the empire. Everything was really well publicized. um, And the WPA, which now, oh, the Women's Patriotic Association, there we go, followed suit. Uh, It was an opportunity for the upper class women to get involved with the war effort without becoming nurses or going to work. And their goal was to provide comforts for the troops, which means blankets and socks and... Things like that. Uh, Different types of clothing they would sew or knit. Not other kinds of comforts, Ashley. Jeez. (laughs) I wasn't. I didn't go there. (laughs) I didn't go there. So at this time, I know that Newfoundland was not actually part of Canada, but I thought we could mention them a little bit. The women of Newfoundland here. Um, And they are now. They're part of Canada. So it's a good perspective still of the empire. Um, Women in Newfoundland had the Women's Patriotic Association, or the WPA, and Newfoundland relied heavily on the WPA and a network of information as a machine to produce comforts, medical supplies, and even the uniforms for the men. A lady named Lady Margaret Davidson, Governor Walter Davidson's wife, she headed up the WPA, and within a short amount of time, they had set up an operation that basically took over the government house with work parties, busy cutting, sewing, and knitting, but they also acted as as a supply depot 
and a shipping center and had a quality control room that sent any mistakes to an alterations department. They were, they were on this. They were organized. And the executive board even made sure to balance itself with their elite members, making sure to include Church of England parishioners, Catholics, and Methodists. So they were trying to just equal everything out so everybody could feel included or maybe more importantly that there wasn't exclusions. The women knew how to do this. All the men were like, oh, you're Catholic, you're Protestant, I can't talk to you. And the women were like, no, let's get together and do this. I was just going to say, there is a very notable difference. (laughs) Yeah, from your perspective with the conscription (laughs) and with this, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a dichotomy there. Uh, They're also heavily involved in fundraising for everything for the war effort for the island uh, that they needed, including convalescent homes, special medical causes like hospital cots, education for blind soldiers, um, the Khaki Guild for Disabled Soldiers and Sailors, the Edith Cavill Homes for Exhausted and Sick Nurses, and the Blue Cross Fund for Sick and Wounded Animals at the front. And they also entertained the troops at home. So this WPA was a huge benefit to Newfoundland. And these were across the country, these women's leagues. They did it everywhere. Um, they were all over the country, and these women's leagues included the WPA... The VAD, I just kind of want to list a little so they all get their little shout out here. The Patriotic, or sorry, the Canadian Patriotic Fund, the Canadian Red Cross, the Imperial Order, Daughters of the Empire, the Rural Women's Institutes, the Young Women's Christian Association, the YWCA, and many other religious groups and municipal groups. And they all provided comforts in their own way. And they all participated in recruitment drives and selling bonds and really anywhere that they could help the soldiers overseas or even just their own communities. These women were on it. They were rock stars. The women that were working, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. I know I gave it in the introduction, but I'm going to get Ashley fired up again. Oh, dear. (laughs) No, it's not that controversial. I'm praising and saying women are great. Don't worry about it. (laughs) That still gets me fired up, but in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) So I did talk about uh, women coming into the workforce. So the servants, a lot of servants, a lot of laundresses, teachers, they left. And they came into factory works, workers that offered better wages. Um, But a lot of women didn't leave their homes to work. Just that wasn't an option because... The ones that didn't work a lot of the time had children at home and childcare was not something that was a thing mm-hmm. in the early 20th century. There wasn't really daycares or anything. So you had to hire a nanny if you wanted childcare or leave the kids with your mother. But that wasn't something for everybody. It, it just wasn't an accessible service. So as with the Newfoundland WPA, many women were fighting to have domestic work seen as being equal in importance to that of the work that the men were doing instead of fighting to do the men's work. The men's work. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, a woman named Corey Street, she's a Canadian historian, says that the estimate of women working in munitions during the war was only about 11,000, and most of those were in Toronto, Hamilton, and Montreal. And generally, any women that worked in a factory during the war 
promptly stopped that work once the war was over. Right. So they were in these few 11,000 women were only in the workforce in men's jobs for a very short period of time. Um, those that did go to work went to work in the munitions factories and a variety of positions from the manual labor to supervisory roles. Um, they were usually teenagers or you know late teens. They were young, unmarried women. Um, and a lot of these women were actually sent to farms instead of munition factories. And some even traveled from Ontario and Quebec all the way west to do work on farms, which was would have been a real big stir up for them. It would have been exciting. A lot of these women had never left their homes in their, you know, anywhere from 17 to 19 or a little bit older, leaving their families for the first time to do farm work that they had no idea about. And it was really hard work. Um, they had never done it. And it would have been, I think, a life-changing experience for them. And a lot of these mothers, these poor mothers, I I feel with for these mothers, they didn't want their girls to go. And I can't blame them. They're sending their teenage daughters across the country with some supervision. Like they're they're they were sent in work groups and there was like, you know, the house mother and stuff like that. But at that time, you know, women still had to be supervised and you still had to have a, what did they call them? The a chaperone. Yeah, a chaperone. Thank you. And that wasn't always guaranteed there. And there were still men farm workers. So you had to worry about your girl going there. Oh, of course. I think a mother would now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For sure. I did like the word that they used for these women, though. They called them the farmerettes. Oh, cute. I thought that was cute. It reminded <laughs> me of like a league of their own or something, which I know is like 20 years later, but uh, I thought it was I started adorable. watching. I started watching the show. It was not my favorite show. <sighs> okay. Yeah. I'm going to finish it. Finish it. I just, the, my most, dis- we're on a tangent here, but my most disappointing thing about that show is that the there's so little baseball in it and the baseball looks so fake. Oh, like in the movie, in the original 19, was it 1991 movie or 93? Those women learned how to play baseball for the movie. It looked like in the show, everything was like CG, like the pitcher didn't look like she was pitching. And ugh. Oh, but. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Anyway, There's, sorry for the interruption. No, that's OK. <laughs> that rant is over. I'm a big baseball fan. So <laughs> so to have that ruined is hard on me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but another industry that the women went back into, or not went back into, went into, was banking, actually. That was a really? huge industry for women. Um, the bank tellers, they're, before the war, they were pretty much all men, but that was one job that got cleared out, and the women came in. And this was probably, I don't want to say the one, but one of the bigger industries, that the women stayed in that job after the war. They didn't get kicked out. They didn't get sent away. Uh, and there's, I found a little article in McLean's magazine. It says, uh, according to McLean's magazine, women appear to have been generally accepted in banks by 1916. And this is a quote. Uh, no sooner do we get a nice boy installed as a manager or teller than the bugles come lilting down the street. A week later, you go in to deposit your little check, and lo, the nice boy is gone, melted out. Ekyad! 
and another reigns in his stead. Yesterday I went by, glanced in for the red-headed Scotsman, and found, to my surprise, a neat and precise little girl with a tailored blouse and an office manner correct to infinity, crouched on the high stool as though she had grown there always. These job... <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> so these people are really pumped to see women in the job because they're not going to be shipped off in the next week. <laughs> <laughs> And what one of the, the words in the quote when I said egad or whatever I, I was said, like what what are you saying <laughs> It is spelled in this quote E N K H A K I E D I don't okay. know what that word is so I sure. said whatever I said <laughs> Okay that's, that works Yeah this person was Surprised. That's what I was going for there. Anyway, these jobs never paid very much. The average was only about $9 a week um, for farm jobs, for bank jobs. The average around there for a woman was about $9 a week. Um, some of the farms, though, included room and board, but they were never left with very much after. Um, and, of course, there were the other jobs that women stayed in after the war. A lot of the times the teachers... Domestic servants, paid caregivers, and unpaid caregivers. So when women, whether they had to work or whether they had paid work or not, were encouraged to support the war effort in every way possible. This meant often learning new skills or just doing more. The victory gardens were very important and preserving and canning became even more important than they had been before because everyone was, li was living on rations. Speaking of rations, this meant that women needed to adjust their family's groceries and come up with new ways to cook with limited or no flour, sugar, and meat. And they also often had only what income their men sent back to them if they were in unpaid jobs. So women were adjusting in a multitude of different ways. Some of them didn't garden before. They had to learn how to garden. They had to learn how to, if they didn't know already, I know canning and preserving was probably more frequent back then than it is now for a lot of people. But if they didn't know, they had to learn that skill. They had to work on this whole new budget. They had to figure out new recipes and how to keep their kids sustained on totally different grocery lists. It was a huge adjustment for women that I, and I think that's a perspective that a lot of people don't consider. They think, oh, well, women wanted to go to work. The women worked in the factories, whatever. But they didn't think of the woman at home having to make all these changes. I mean, maybe some wealthy women had a different perspective on that. And maybe their servants did all that adjusting for them. But the majority of just run-of-the-mill people had to change their lives exponentially. Right. And then you hope you've got a good enough man overseas sending you back some of his pay. Absolutely. Well, and you hope for more than one reason that he doesn't die. Yeah, that too. Because if he go, if he dies over there and you have zero income other than what he was sending back to you, what do you do? You're, you could be destitute very easily. Going back to groceries and adjusting and they had to worry about prices, a new budget for your groceries. I found, I was looking at um, the site, what is it called? Canadian Letters, I think. It's the, the site that has all these letters scanned and, and transcribed from different wars in Canada. And I found one, um, somebody named Shori ne Neville 
of the 203rd Battalion wrote to his wife from the Bramshot camp in 1917. He said, don't talk prices. Sugar, six and a half. It says D. I'm assuming that's dollars. Six and a half dollars a pound and obtainable only at the rate of half a pound with each shilling's worth of other groceries. Eggs, four and a half D a piece. Coal limited in quantity and a way up in price. Gasoline limited to 28 gallons per cap per car per month. Price in the neighborhood of 2D. Bread made of whole wheat flour, 4 or 5D per loaf. We still get white bread, but I do not understand why. Surely the natural flour is better for us than the class of folks that are civilians here. So, like, prices, I'm... Maybe that's not dollars because that seems like really expensive for like that's, that year. Yeah, but. like that's like today's prices. Yeah, so I don't know if D means dollars. I don't know, but, but prices are What else are up. would it mean? Yeah. But what else would it I don't know. I have no idea. His point was don't talk prices. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't care. <laughs> so all these women were changing their lives and making all these adjustments and doing what they had to do and supporting the war effort in every possible way. But of course, no matter what these women did, there were some critics and not so nice men out there. So at the same time, however, this oh, this was a quote, sorry. This is a quote uh, from somebody, some man. Uh, this this is what he's saying about women. At the same time, however, the suggestion that women might be hired on street railway systems sparked outrage and collective action among male workers in several cities, particularly Kingston and Toronto. It also prompted an attack on women's morality. The Toronto Union argued that no self-respecting female would desire to force her way through the jam that overcrowded the cars during certain hours of the day when passengers are wedged together about as thick as herrings in a box. So men resented the women, and they made it harder for them. They didn't want them working in certain so-called male-dominated positions. They would rather starve Mm -hmm. than take over their job. Absolutely, they would. Absolutely, in a lot of cases. Um, They made it harder. Sometimes... The men purposely messed up work so that women would get in trouble. Oh. Uh, There's this great documentary I found. I just died watching this. I loved it. It's called And We Knew How to Dance. And it's all about women in the First World War. And it's actually on the uh, National Film Board website. You can just go stream it for free. And I highly recommend it. It's just all these old women talking about their experiences during the war And one woman talked about her nasty foreman who had a habit of touching the women. (sighs) Of course. This particular woman, she stood up to him, though. And so he made life difficult for her at work. But her story goes, one night they ended up at the same party and he tried to kiss her. So she slapped him. (laughs) (laughs) Good for her. But he didn't give up at work either. So eventually she got so mad, she grabbed him by the head and banged his head on the metal shelves. They apparently (laughs) needed the man, though, at the work, wherever she was working. So they transferred her to a different factory instead of firing him. 
Of course. Yeah, why wouldn't that There's no such thing as sexual harassment in 1916. (laughs) But I thought, good for her. Yes. (laughs) You go, Grandma. Yeah. (laughs) Another lady talked about um, how two men were upset that she made more money than them. But the foreman, this is a totally different factory than the first lady. Yeah. And different foreman, uh, took them down to see her working in the factory and their hands were too big to fit in between the and pull pull the turnbuckle. I don't know what they were doing or what they had to do, um, but she could do it. So every time they had to do whatever this turnbuckle thing is, they had to stop the assembly line, pull this turnbuckle, and start it all up again. But her hands were small enough so that she could just fit in there and do it and not slow down the work. So after that, actually, these men let it drop and because they could see that her work was more efficient. So she got paid more. Ha. Good. (laughs) One thing I did think was really quite sad was I think every woman in this documentary had a story of sexual harassment. There was pinching butts or trying to touch them or cat calling them or trying to kiss them like in the workplace. And, you know, it's just it's disgusting, really. Oh, that reminds me, um, just like a, a somewhat related comment, like Tyler's um, grandparents, they were alive during World War II, and um, his mom was like talking to his grandmother about like world, the war and like, you know, did she have a boyfriend like during the war? Because she married her husband after the war and she was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> She's like, the men left on the home front were just so like the dredges of society. They were so <laughs> creepy. She's like, all the good ones, you were waiting for them to come home. <laughs> well, it sounds like that was the case here, too. Yeah. <laughs> so women were fighting back in more ways than just giving a guy a concussion on a metal shelf. <laughs> um, women were fighting back with the vote. The fight for the vote had been simmering since the late 19th century in most parts of Canada, but now the women had greater ammunition to back up their arguments. The women were more frequently joining the paid workforce and showing their value in domestic unpaid labor. These women were holding the country together, so why shouldn't they be able to have a say of who's in charge? I agree. Yeah. So Henrietta Muir Edwards, Nellie McClung... Louise McKinney, Emily Murphy, and Irene Parbley. Who are those women, Ashley? I know. They are my ladies. (laughs) The famous five. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) They championed the suffragette movement before the war and continued their work throughout. Nellie McClung famously held a mock parliament in Manitoba, positing the question, what if men were allowed to vote? What would that look like? Oh, man. (laughs) There is a Canada heritage moment about that, and I love it, and it's hilarious. Oh, I'll have to go back. I don't remember that one. Yeah, she stands up, and what if men could have the vote? Well, what would they do? They would just take... They wouldn't be able to concentrate on their jobs, and the economy would fall apart, and oh, no. (laughs) They're too emotional. Yeah, oh no. So in 1916, through her persistence, along with 
that of many others, Manitoba was the first province to give women the vote. Woohoo! The other prairie provinces followed suit that year, and by 19, well, 1940, all provinces had given the women the right oh, to vote. With what Ke- was the last one? Oh, I should, I kind of just said it. What do you oh, think? Quebec. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Quebec. Yeah, of course, Quebec. What were you thinking? <laughs> well, I don't know. Gross. Quebec, what were you thinking? I have no commentary on that one. <laughs> so uh, for the federal elections, as Ashley kind of went into, the Borden government used women's voting rights as a way to pass the Conscription Act. The first way in which women were allowed to vote in Canada was through the Military Voters Act. And... This gave soldiers under the age of 21 and women serving in the military as nurses the ability to vote. And according to Elections Canada, those who voted at a field hospital in France in December 1917 were, because of the time differences, the first women to vote in a federal election. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it wasn't even Canadian soil, but they were Canadian and they voted in the Canadian election. There you go. Yeah. So the second was the Wartime Elections Act, which came into effect September 20th, 1917. I can't remember if you gave all these details, so I'm going to go over them again. That's <laughs> just okay. In case. So disenfranchised citizens of enemy alien birth who had been naturalized after March 31st, 1902, and those who were conscientious objectors could now vote, and mothers, wives, and sisters of soldiers could as well. Yes. So, and your soldier didn't have to be dead or anything like that. It was just mothers, wives, sisters, relatives, close relatives of soldiers could do that. So this all meant, this was all meant to be temporary and the voting structures were supposed to go back to the way they were after the war. But the re-elected Borden government on March 21st, 1918, introduced a bill to provide for universal female suffrage. See, he did get to it. He got to it eventually. Eventually, yes. He said he would. He, yeah, he kept his election promise, which doesn't always he happen. He did. He did. Mm-hmm. I'll give him that. <laughs> but not surprisingly, it did not receive universal approval. MP Jean-Joseph Denis said, I say that the Holy Scripture, theology, ancient philosophy, Christian philosophy, history, anatomy, physiology, political economy, and Feminine psychology all seem to indicate that the place of women in this world is not amid the strife of the political arena, but in the home. <laughs> I would have never made it to this time. Like, oh my God. I'm dying. <laughs> Denny, you are a jackass. <laughs> He gets the jackass award for today. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But our little story here has a very happy ending. The efforts of Canadian suffragists were finally crowned with partial success when the act to confer the electoral franchise upon women received royal assent on May 24th, 1918. Yay! Thanks to it, most women over... 21 years of age could vote in federal elections but again nothing is actually fair and the exceptions were people of asian origin and 
Aboriginal peoples. This took until 1948 and 1960. Uh, This is what I was talking about earlier. In 1982, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms guaranteed all citizens over the age of 18 the right to vote. Okay, so there were still exemptions. There there were exemptions up until 1982. I guess exclusions. Yeah. Okay. (sighs) So the women did finally get the vote. They did not have equality, but they learned some new skills. Some of them got some new jobs. I wanted to go into a a little bit more scandal because there was a bunch of propaganda about women hanging around in cities. Those city working women with Mm. their syphilis spreading it to all the (laughs) men. Yes, it's the women's fault. Yeah. I did not obviously dive into that, but I would like to in a future episode. I think we need to. Yes. I feel like this is an important topic. I think so. Why not? Just for fun. They were important part of the war effort as well. (laughs) Of course they were. (laughs) Contrary to what Mr. Denny thinks. Oh, Denny. Well, there we go. I was going to interrupt. Before you go, I found the word that French Canadians were called. And it was slacker. Oh. That was the word. That's not nice. No. I don't know if I did a great... Well, I guess I'll say I could have expanded more on it. But like there were lots of posters. And one of them says, the slacker must not rule Canada. Vote union government. Jeez. And it's just unfortunate because, like, the anti-conscriptionists, like, most of the posters I found, they were much more, um, they didn't play into, like, the slander game. Mm. It was more, like, protect your rights and freedom to vote. Like, come to this rally. It wasn't, but you know how the political game works. Like, the group, the best slogan, right? That's what catches people's eyes. Like, it was, whoever was the campaign manager for the anti-conscriptionists, they did a terrible job. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to clarify what that word was because I found it. There you go. So all these women and these slackers and <laughs> everybody staying at the home front, they still were important to Canada. That's right. Well, that was a fun one. <laughs> that was. It was a good one. Next week. What are, Or next, not next week. Ha. Next, next episode. Time. What are we doing, Ash? Do you know? I, th- uh, I think it's the Battle of Cambrai. All right. If I said that right. I think I did. I think you did. Yeah. So we got some work to do, girl. Absolutely, because I don't know anything about this battle. I'm not as familiar with this one either. No, we're going to be learning together. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. We are What About the Canadians. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What About the Canadians podcast. And you can listen on all the podcast catcher podcatchers. Uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. And that helps people find us on the algorithms. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.